I'm certainly thankful for those who lead us in musical worship. Sometimes I get distracted and think about other things and I can look up and see somebody else who's really into it and think, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm confessing my sins maybe this morning, but I'm thankful for those who lead. And even to sing that lyric, I've not thought much about that lyric ever in my life. I've been singing it since I could sing, but born to give us second birth struck me as striking. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we are not going to look at the crucifixion um, as good as that would be. I tried to figure out a way, but I didn't succeed. Um, we're going to talk about the birth, the birth narrative, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second chapter of Dr. Luke's account as he is writing with historical detail as a medical doctor would um, to try to persuade a skeptic. So Luke volume 1 is the gospel according to Luke. Luke volume 2 is the book of Acts. Uh, and so Luke's coming at it from that perspective. The outline this morning, I do have an outline, and we're looking at eight Christmas ironies. Eight Christmas ironies that I hope help us to join the angels in worshiping God for his gracious provision. I realize that I use ironies probably too often. Um, but I'm compelled. We're looking at the end of Christ's life on earth and he's being crucified as the king of kings. It doesn't get more ironic than that. It, it seems wrong. It seems backward. That's not how it's supposed to be. But there's a good coming as a result by God's grace. Well, the birth ironies, uh, it seems wrong, but it's actually right. What's going on here? Well, here he is born in a stable in Bethlehem of all places, shepherds involved. It's very ironic the way Jesus is born, and yet it's all been by design, as the song says, born even in that surprising way to give us second birth. If I were God, heaven forbid. If I were God, or if you were God, this is not the way we would do it. This isn't the way anyone would do it. The God of the universe, the one true and living God, has chosen to provide salvation for his people in a way that is very, 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 on the face of it, ironic. It's so different, and I'm thankful for that. Irony number one, the irony of Caesar's decree. The irony of Caesar's decree. How about verses one and following? Let's look at the opening two verses where we read in Luke chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Caesar, when you think Caesar, think King, think in charge, think sovereign, think Lord, think people even worshipped the Caesar, whoever the Caesar happened to be. Okay, Roman power seeking to rule over the entire world. And when that Caesar, when a Caesar issues a decree for something to be done, given the fact that he's most powerful... You need to obey. You need to do what that great, great, worthy king says. It's implicit irony. It's not so explicit, but it's implicit irony. Here, he's going to require a census. It's going to require Joseph to go with Mary to go to Bethlehem so that Jesus can be born where he's supposed to be born. It's ironic. 
that the king of kings, not really, mandates that people obey him so that really the king of kings will be born where he's supposed to be born by divine design. It's good. It's really good. A couple of helpful quotations from commentators and pastors that I've appreciated in the past. One is in heaven now. I think the other one's still with us. Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge. I like that. How about this one? God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior would stand alone as king of kings. One more for good measure. Although Caesar would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. All that's right and true. Who would have thunk it? There is a greater sovereign than Caesar the sovereign. And it is none other than God himself sent his son so that we might have life. Number two, another irony of this birth narrative, the irony of Bethlehem. The irony of Bethlehem. We'll have some fun with this. How about verse three? And all, and all went to be registered each to his own town. So wherever you're from, this is the way to break it down and make the most sense of things and keep things orderly. So that's what they're required to do. Verse four says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Depending on how you route it and how you get there, uh, it's estimated some 90 miles, up to 90 miles. So quite the trek, quite the thing to get done, uh, to, to get all the way to Bethlehem. Then let's keep reading. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Bethlehem, because of David. Then verse 5 says, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. So they're legally bound to be married. So more than engagement, legally bound to be married, but not married yet. Marriage hasn't been consummated. Mary is still a virgin. Therefore, let's keep reading, who was with child. Time to raise an eyebrow. Betrothed with child. Hmm. That's a whole other irony that I didn't highlight for us. We should talk about that maybe at another time. I won't do it now. Virgin conception is really important. And it's here in our text. He needs to be different from the rest of the human race. And he most definitely is virgin conception. But we'll save that for a different day when I want to talk about ironies. For now, I want you to see this Bethlehem matter. Bethlehem. Does anybody know what Bethlehem means? I'll bet there's a lot of you who do. A lot of you who don't. It means something like house of bread. It's, to use my words, it's chumpy. Um, it's pretty insignificant unless you need bread. Okay? I mean, it's, it's the house of bread. It's, it's an insignificant kind of place. Uh, my brother, who is a pastor in Massachusetts, pastors Bethlehem Bible Church. And he and I have had, you know, as a footnote, if you've been praying for him, thank you. His health is getting much, much better. He preached at a conference last week, and uh, he sent me a picture of him wearing his bicycling helmet this past week, and he actually rode his bike outside. So given the fact that the doctor said he, they didn't think he would ever leave the hospital again alive, thanks for praying. Okay, but I digress. My brother Mike and I were talking about this one time, and we thought it was kind of funny, kind of amusing. Bethlehem Bible Church. Oh, it sounds so good. 
Breadtown Bible Church. Insignificant, chumpy town Bible Church. <laughs> right? I mean, it, we think it sounds good because we know the Bible. And maybe we, we have a good enough theology, we can put some spin on it. And let's do that now. We can say, yeah, it, we are insignificant. And, and we preach Christ who is significant. So th- there's something to it. Um, years ago when I was like into Harley Davidson's and skulls and all that kind of stuff, I, I wanted to do a church plant and call it Skull Bible Church. Calvary means skull. It's, pr- it's pretty good. It didn't work out, but <laughs> because that sounds tough. I mean, that's, that's anyway, we get way off track. I, what I want you to see is the irony of Jesus being born in Nowheresville, bread town, Bethlehem. Okay. It's not what you'd think. It's what makes it ironic of all places for a great, amazing sovereign savior to be born. You wouldn't think if you were inventing this religion, you wouldn't pick Bethlehem is the idea. It's in a sense meant to jump off the page. If we just know a little bit about Bethlehem, who would have made that up? Who would have thought that? But I know some of you know your Bible well enough to know, well, hold on, pastor. Bethlehem actually is important. And it is. For starters, listen to First Samuel chapter, chapter 16, verse 1. Old Testament. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Oil is for anointing both to show kindness and, and as a, a lotion, if you will, but it's used symbolically and it's used that way here. You anoint a priest, you anoint a king for something special. It's very symbolic. How about this? He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And if we keep reading in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from the, from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Ah, David. And we start putting the pieces together. David, that happened in Bethlehem. David is from Bethlehem. And we start putting the pieces together. Jesus will come in the line of David. He's the greater, sometimes we say Davidite. He's the ultimate king, the perfect king. Israel had good kings and bad kings. A bad king would be Saul. A really good king would be David. But even the really good king David, if you know enough, you think he couldn't be the perfect Messiah. He couldn't rule and reign forever because he's a sinner and sin calls for death. He couldn't fulfill the Davidic covenant of Second Samuel. So where are we going with all of this? Bethlehem actually is important. It's actually important. Maybe not because of commerce. Maybe not because of politics and power and religion. But because Jesus is the ultimate good king. He is the ultimate king, the ultimate Christ, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. And then you hopefully are thinking, when are you going to get to the easy passage when it comes to Bethlehem? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from old. It's all according to plan from ancient days. So Bethlehem, insignificant. Bethlehem, significant. It's ironic, but it's on purpose. God, the Father, is having his son born there because he would be born nowhere else. From from a human perspective, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem because of the great Caesar. No, from a divine perspective, from your perspective, from my perspective, it's because this is where he had to be born. He was always going to be born there. A couple of other texts, we don't need to take the time to go there, but if we went back to chapter 1 of Luke, Luke one thirty two, called the Son of the Most High, and he will have his throne of his father David, 169, in the house of his servant David. You guys doing okay? We have eight of these, so I'm trying to talk really fast, but sometimes it's hard. Let's go to another irony. I hope you're having fun. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're learning something, reminded about how great our saving God is compared to all other gods that we make up in our imaginations. This one uses irony. He does things we wouldn't think he would do. Number three, the irony of the manger. The irony of the manger. This one's pretty obvious, I think, to most of us in the room. But let's go ahead and dive into verse 6. And when they were there, the time came for for her to give birth. 7 says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Read animal feeding trough because there was no place for them in the inn. And if you're not reading that thinking, that's weird, it's because you're just used to it or you're not paying attention. We we should be reading it if we read it with fresh eyes, which is hard to do sometimes, I know, and saying, that's odd, that's strange. King of kings and Lord of lords, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There's no room for them in the inn, either because everything else is booked or because nobody wants them. So now they're with the animals. So a manger is a food trough for domesticated animals. So what are you going to do? Uh, you're going to clean it up a little bit, best you can. Uh, lay baby Jesus there. That That's just not right. When it comes to hospitality, when it comes to what he deserves, when it comes to all of those kinds of things. Part of the irony is for us to say that that, that doesn't seem right. Her firstborn... It's her firstborn because she will have other children. Luke chapter 8 verse 19 is none other than the firstborn. Colossians 1.15, firstborn of all creation. The idea is preeminence, the greatest. And he's born in a stable, laid in a manger. As a little bit of an aside, uh, this time of year when you're at the local grocery store checking out, oftentimes uh, the magazines that are there, you're going to find one that has something to do with Jesus. And we know that around Easter time, there's going to be another magazine or multiple magazines and this great new amazing discovery that proves that Christianity is not true or it's not the traditional Christianity. It's just, I used to buy them and I'm just so over it. It's not even funny. Um, and, and they'll say things like, oftentimes, I mean, if Christianity is not true, I want to know. <laughs> We're fools. Even the Apostle Paul says that. 
But they'll say things like, well, we, we actually know that the historical account is not accurate because, you know, uh, archaeologists have found that oftentimes what farmers would do um, or, or what people would do is they would use a cave uh, and they would use a cave for their animals. And so, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't born in a stable. He was born in a cave. Oh, I've lost my faith. Some of you who are younger are going to go pay tuition to learn from professors who get PhDs in such things. Um, and I want never. I'm I'm, being, I'm using self control. Sometimes people used to complain about Spurgeon using humor in the pulpit, and he said, "If you only knew the things I thought and didn't say." <laughs> so, self control is a good thing. How about it's a cave? Is this particular one a cave? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. If I happen to own land where there's a cave where I don't have to spend as much money to fence in my animals, I'm going to make use of the cave and use a little less fencing. Duh, you can have a stable cave. If these are the things that cause Christianity to, to stand or fall, it's silly. It's silly. Okay, well, that was kind of for free. I did it first hour and asked everybody to, to vote, and it was kind of split, and they thought you should hear it too, so I don't know. Thank you for your courtesy laughs. There's no place for them in the inn, um, and so they're in... What, what does our text actually even say? Um, does it say Stable. Sorry. I liked what one pastor said about this. He said, the smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and pungent straw made a contemptible bouquet. I don't know what to make of that, but I thought it was... Somebody worked a long time on that sentence, so I thought I would share with you in a sermon. There's so much wrong going on here. The king of kings and lord of lords, right? And he's, and he's laid in, a, in an animal food trough. Now I want you, before we move on to the next irony, I do want you to think about how interesting God is for doing it this way. If Jesus would have been born and he would have been born in a palace to save his people from their sins, would God be merciful and gracious? Absolutely, he would be merciful and gracious, and it would be fitting, right? If if somehow everyone, if he were born in this day and age, and I'm just making this stuff up now, and and every eye could actually see, and and everyone would stay up till all hours of the night based upon where they lived in the, in the world because of time zones and all of this to watch and observe, and everyone would be told from a voice from heaven, "This is the one." To save you from your sins, would God be gracious? Absolutely. You could have all of the pomp and circumstance and it would be gracious. It's just so ironic that while I probably would have done it that way, it's not how the unique God who's different from all of the made-up gods has chosen to do it. To show his love for his people, it comes in an unexpected way. J.C. Ryle, who is so easy to quote, you can almost pick up one of his books and just do the do the roulette thing, and just spin the pages and, and put your finger there and, and say to your 
spouse, friend, neighbor, roommate, listen to this. And you're like, oh, J.C. Ryle. Okay, here's a good J.C. Ryle quote. We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. That right there is good enough. He stoops down to be with us graciously. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. It's just another reason why I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a different kind of Savior than the Saviors we make up. So different. Okay, let's do number four. Another irony, the irony of shepherds. The irony of shepherds. Verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. I wrote in my margin, hmm. As in, this is... Another strange thing happening. The king of kings is going to be born, right? Savior is going to be born. And so let's make sure we go tell priests and kings and influential people. So shepherds? Shepherds are like working class sinners. Let's call them. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to be too negative on the shepherds or too positive on the shepherds. So let's not demonize the shepherds, but let's also um, not make let's not make them into something or romanticize them is the idea I was thinking of. He shows up to the shepherds and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Wow. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And you think to yourself, I'll bet they were. I mean, just on a basic level, when something super loud happens, some explosion and you, you, you run or, or if you're in bed, you, you jump out of bed real quick and, or something like that. Well, these guys aren't in bed. They're shepherding, but something extraordinary. God shows up uniquely and extraordinarily the presence of God and what in the world is happening? You'd be afraid too. It's the, it's the natural response to the supernatural. The significance, the the grandeur, the greatness of God shows up. This is surprising. And it's surprising that it shows up, or he shows up, I should say, to shepherds. So, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more, but you'd think it would be somebody more important than shepherds. I was listening to a a favorite preacher preach uh, on, on this some time ago, and he talked about how he, he'd been in so many, this is off the top of my head, as I recall, he'd been in so many different Christmas pageants, Christmas plays, put on at the church, and, uh, and so who's gonna be Mary? It's some sweet, kind of godly young woman, uh, and who everybody thinks she's sweet and godly, appropriately so, and, and he said, you know, maybe a jock is gonna be, who's super popular is gonna be Joseph, uh, and he's saying all this in a Scottish accent, so it sounds good. Um, he And then in a Scottish accent, he says the wise men are going to be the geeks because <laughs> they're smart. Um, and then he says, and then there are the shepherds. <laughs> you know, so what were you in the Christmas pageant? A shepherd for the fourth year. Um, 
Sorry if I'm offending you because you've played a shepherd before. I'm sure you were a good shepherd. <laughs> but the idea is they're just the regular people. They're just the regular people. And I don't think it's reading too much into the text to see not regular glory of the Lord shown to the regular people. And I'm going to prove it to you when we keep reading and we look at the next irony. Number five, the irony of the gospel. The irony of the gospel in particular coming to these. By gospel, we mean good news. We mean the good news about the saving work of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. How about verse 10? And the angel said to them, fear not. Here's why. For behold, I bring you, you shepherds. I bring you good news. It's the word for gospel. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The irony of the gospel, the good news, the irony of the gospel, I'm going to connect these two ironies. Coming to shepherds is amazing. Okay, I call them working class sinners. It's probably a good way to look at it. They're, they're like most folks, if you will. They're, 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 they're not the dregs of society, but they're not the people you'd think this would all happen to. So the gospel doesn't come to those who are inherently good. Then it wouldn't come to anyone. The gospel doesn't come to the, to the supposedly righteous. The gospel comes to these working class sinners who we should be able to, lots of us, in the middle, we can identify with. It comes to them. For all the people. This is a gospel that has come, the gospel that has come in Christ for all the people. Not just again for the priest class, not just for the royalty, not just for the imprisoned if you want to go low. This is the gospel, the one and only gospel that can possibly save any sinner. It's the gospel for all the people. That's why he came to shepherds. And I don't know if you've ever noticed before or not. Shame on me. I haven't noticed. I'm sure you're a lot smarter than I am and a better Bible reader. But how about verse 11? If we just peek there, I don't really want to get there yet. But if we just include verse 11 with verse 10, at least the opening words. For unto you is born. So the gospel shows up to shepherds. At least the announcement does. It's an announcement of Jesus, who's the good one of the good news. Unto you is born? That's not right. At least on a certain level. First blush. It's, for unto you Mary is born a child. For oh, unto you Joseph and Mary, how about? No, because it's talking about the good news of salvation. Unto you, shepherds. Unto you, regular people, is born by application, and we're not forcing it or pushing it, I don't think by any means, even in light of Mary's Magnificat that we read earlier. Unto you, Jesus is born. Looking at you, living in the 21st century. Unto anyone and everyone who would ever trust in Him for salvation, He's born. Born to give us second birth. I love it. I, I'll, I'll never get it out of my mind now. Verse 11, for unto you is born the shepherd class. 
Not that there aren't people above that class and below that class, but the idea is the regular kind of people. Okay, let's do number six. The sixth irony of ironies in this, or Christmas ironies, the irony of titles. Titles. And it's ironic because of the great titles he's going to be given, but he looks like a homeless person. How in the world would someone who at least looks like, I realize Mary and Joseph aren't homeless, but it looks like they are, at least while they're in Bethlehem. How about these titles in verse 11? For unto you is born this day, in time, in space, in history, on this day, guess what? In the city of David, geographical location, where it's supposed to be. But notice the titles. A Savior, who is Christ, Messiah, anointed one, the Lord. Oh, the titles. Now, maybe Savior is not a formal title. Mine's, the translation I'm reading from capitalizes it, and it doesn't matter either way because a, a, a true Christ is a Savior. A, a true Christ is a true king, a true anointed one, and he will rescue his people from danger and provide for his people. So there's overlap, in other words. But let's just use them as titles for now. Born in Bethlehem, Breadtown. Oh, and earlier I forgot to mention that Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem via Nazareth. (laughs) More irony. Remember, on other accounts we've heard, no good thing comes out of Nazareth. So here we have seemingly homeless people. In Bethlehem, they came by way of Nazareth. And the baby that's born that's put in a food trough, Savior. Christ, the Sovereign, the Lord, the King. Doesn't look like it. (laughs) Not in a million years does it look like it. We know it doesn't end here. And we know that it will look like it. But oh, the titles. He will save His people from their sins. He's a Savior who is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the ultimate David, and he is the Lord. I pretty much love that. Maybe one other synonym or descriptor. If you have the Lord, if we're talking about that that title that's used for God Almighty, the Lord has dominion, conquers. Sure doesn't look like it. but it will be so. So fascinating. Okay, we should move on to verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So that Lord, Savior, Christ, manger doesn't seem right. You know what seems right? What seems right is for God to help those who help themselves. You know what seems right is for good people to go to heaven, and we're all pretty good. You know what seems right, and the list could go on and on, what seems right to spiritually fallen individuals like you and like me. And here, it's totally different, and I think totally on purpose. 
Okay, let's do number seven and number eight. And I'm going to sneak one in in the conclusion because I won't be able to help myself. So there might be nine. Number seven, the irony of angelic praise. Verse 13 says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. That's a word that's sometimes used to describe armies. They're powerful. Heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Give give credit where credit is due. Emphasize Him. It's all about Him. He's great. Praise Him. Give Him your gaze. Give Him your attention. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. So the great, extraordinary, unleashed, unhindered, full throttle, I'm looking for more synonyms, praise be to God is for the incarnation of His Son who will save His people from their sins. The angels get it. At least on that level, the incarnation brings glory to God in an extraordinary way. And we see, even in our text, if we put the pieces together in light of the context, and that great incarnation that brings glory to God brings peace on earth. The ultimate peace is only ever going to come between us and God through the one mediator. And ultimate peace can only be legitimately, authentically, purely established on this level if it comes through Him. So, incarnation, glory to God, good for us. Here's a little interesting historical note about this matter. This was an age, when this is happening, of Pax Romana, when Romans often praised their emperor for bringing, ready? Peace on earth. If you've got a good emperor... He brings peace on earth. Praise be to Caesar. Blessed art thou, Caesar. He brings peace. It's so good to, so good to hijack the language (laughs) in a sanctified good sense. Shocking. And we know Jesus brings peace, Colossians 1.20 says, by the blood of his cross. All of this will culminate with that. Okay, let's go quickly. Verses 15 to 20. Uh, not so much iron, uh, irony. Um, maybe some of you will find some irony. I think I probably could if I really tried. But let's just read verses 15 to 20 and then wrap things up with the final one. 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 16 says, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in, in, in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 18 says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And I want to put my finger there just for a moment. And to to think about Mary as a young woman. 
as a girl, at least if she's betrothed as would be customary in the day. She's young. She's not perfect. But she's special. And it just, as I read this, I think about certain families that I've known throughout the years and certain young women, old girls, who just seem sweet. Maybe even naively sweet. Like I want the parents to protect that. Just so, seemingly so innocent. They'll believe anything anybody tells them. I'm not saying that's true of Mary here, but they're not jaded yet. Um, so optimistic. They need to have big brothers. <laughs> you get the idea. And sometimes when they, you, you, they talk about getting married someday and they just smile and, you know, they've not been married to a sinner yet. <laughs> just think about Mary, young woman, has not been married yet to Joseph, and what her sincerity and sweetness might have been like. I'm speculating. And then I read the words, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. If it didn't bring a sweet smile to her face, it certainly brought warmth and joy to her heart. I get to be the one that every young woman, every young Jewish woman at least, has been waiting for ever since the first sinner was born. It's, it's going to be me. Verse 20 says, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Eighth and final irony, and then the conclusion, which is ironic. Number eight, the irony of circumcision. The irony of circumcision. A sign of the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 17, but it's carried into the Mosaic law as well. One writer says it was also a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. What a reminder that we're sinners. So when we read our text and it says, and at the age of eight days when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So I circled and underlined and drew boxes around circumcised and Jesus. We could also highlight, no, that's the one. Those are the two. Circumcised Jesus. He's, he's virgin born. He, he entered into the human race uniquely. He, he's Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the spotless lamb. Why in the world would the one be named Jesus, oh, we're getting warmer, be circumcised. Because Jesus means Savior. And He doesn't need to be saved, but He needs to save sinners and is going to save sinners, and that's why He was born. And so what Jesus does is He identifies with sinners in His day. And the Jewish people, men were called, or boys were called to be circumcised. And he would 
identify. He would condescend. It's kind of like his baptism, right? John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to be in that line. (laughs) But he does so, and John the Baptist knows so. John the Baptist has one of those over my dead body kind of moments. He does so to identify with sinners, though he himself is not a sinner. So here we have Jesus being like us, identifying with sinners because he's going to save sinners. It's noteworthy that the Savior is circumcised because he's going to save people from their sins. People like you and people like me. I love it. On first blush, when I read verse 21 with a, with a theologically informed mind, it just, it just screams, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. Unless we have irony, condescension, becoming one of us, identifying with us. He's born under the law. He's born into the world of Judaism. But to be the savior of Jew and Gentile, oh, Circumcised because he's the savior. Substitute just for the unjust. Right, 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 right. Instead of wrong, 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 wrong. Well, Dr. Luke concludes his gospel account with a bookend. So we have this bookend and then we have another bookend. Luke twenty-two twenty-two says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. All of this irony, which will go to the irony of crucifixion, has all been because this is the plan and purpose of God. Luke in his volume 2, Acts, Acts chapter 4, this is predetermined, that this is how it would go. All unfolding so that the one born in Bethlehem would give himself up to be crucified to make atonement for our sins. It's fascinating. It's intriguing. It's provocative. It's ironic. But it is good news to sinners like you and like me who need to trust in one who alone has been raised from the dead and promised that those who die, who trust in him, will yet again live. It is your greatest need. It is my greatest need. Praise be to God for providing a great Savior who's so different from any and other all saviors who can't save. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this great text of Scripture that reminds us how great the Lord Jesus Christ is, even though time and time again it doesn't look like he's great. And we know it's all by divine design. And we know it is to silence the foolishness of those who think they're wise. But we're so glad to know that he did, in fact, live a perfect life, that he suffered throughout his life, and that that uh, suffering culminated at the cross where he was a substitute for sinners. We're thankful that that he was raised from the dead, that he has ascended, and he claims us as his very own now, even as our high priest, as our advocate. Encourage us, build us up, motivate us because of this great truth 
to live for your honor and glory because of what, of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.